0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Brazilian Point of View. My name is Ana, and today I have an episode with Chloe. She moved from California to London for her undergrad, and she's been living in London since then, doing a bunch of work on the multicultural scene. And she is soon going to launch a couple of magazines about it. And she just has amazing experience about multiculture, as she comes from quite a different background herself. So I thought it would be very nice to have her here on the podcast, talk a little bit about it because she's quite an expert about it. So yeah, I really hope that you enjoyed it. Before we get to that, please make sure to follow, subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow the podcast on Instagram at the Brazilian POV Podcast. Now, without further ado, let's get to the episode.
1: Thanks for coming to the podcast. No problem at all. Thank you so much for inviting me, Anna.
0: So, first of all, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: No problem. So, my name is Chloe Rispin. I'm currently living in London. originally, I'm from California, but I've been here for the last good few years. Came over originally for my undergraduate degree and then have just sort of been on a bit of a personal journey since uh, moving here.
0: Yeah, how was that moving situation? Because it's a very different, like a change of scenario, just like California to London, not even like weather-wise, but just all the cultural differences.
1: No, definitely. It is sort of the first thing that people notice about me is the accent. Um, and they're always trying to determine whether I'm American or I'm from Canada. And then, you know, they sort of get more information. And I say that I'm from California and they look so gobsmacked. They're sort of like you you decided to to move from the sunniest state of all time to London. They seem genuinely sort of confused at my life choices, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but for me it it made a lot of sense because growing up my grandmother she's english originally and over my childhood through the years would every so often come back and visit and have a lot of really happy memories here going around doing tours of you know museums different villages old country houses and so it was something that i had experienced and felt was really beautiful very idyllic and when it came to I making a decision to study abroad it was one of the options that made the most sense uh, because it was in english as much as i was very keen on the idea of studying in europe my language skills weren't quite there yet um and also you know england was somewhere that i had some you know pre-existing notions about that i would be able to sort of um, integrate a bit better because I'd been there spent some time and I thought you know having an English grandmother would certainly be a bit of a cheat code in terms of assimilation and so that's roughly how it came about.
0: And then you went for your studies and never went back to California.
1: Yeah so I started my undergraduate degree beginning of 2016. I'd done some studies online, but things sort of got a bit more settled in 2016. Um, I really loved my course. I really, really did because it was a bit of a difficult journey getting there. There was a lot of different hurdles. I think that's a story for another time because university in a foreign country, when you're not used to application systems, when you're not used to the whole just mindset around how everything works I just thought oh how different could this be you know there's information online um English-speaking country again I took a lot of things for granted under that umbrella of the anglosphere um but no in the end it did really work out well it was very chaotic but once I had sort of my bachelor's degree in hand I was very happy with the experience that I had
0: How come you decided to stay in London and not going back to California? Because, I mean, I think it's quite usual that people decide to live in the same places they went to, and it's not so common for people to go back. But what made you stay?
1: Yeah, I would say the majority of people in my course – went back home fairly quickly within about the first six months. I would say for most it was principally a sort of a visa issue um, that a lot of people were very keen with the idea of being able to stay in the UK for a year, two years work, sort of see what happens. But the you know, student visa program when I was in you know, my undergrad program was not as generous as what it is currently changing to be at the moment. And so that led a lot of people unfortunately, to have to move, even though they felt really connected with living here, and they felt they'd established a lot of great connections through friendships and professors that they'd met, you know during their time at university. But in my case, I was very lucky that when I first arrived, it wasn't on a student visa. It was because my family originally comes from New Zealand. And then, of course, I have my grandmother who's British. And so I was able to come over on indefinite leave to remain. And so I didn't have the same restrictions that everyone else had. So I was very fortunate to have the liberty to not have this pressure of having to make decisions where I was going to do what I was going to do immediately after. And, you know, if I didn't find a job in X many months that I would just have to go back, you know, and have to sort of re all of my ideas. So I eventually decided to do a postgraduate course afterwards because the the world world and experience of doing my undergrad you, you kind of don't have a moment to stop and think about what comes next um i know that sounds a little bit you know surprising but it you're just so invested in everything that's going on making the best of the experience and the end of the program always seems so far away in your mind you think oh you know i have loads of time and then suddenly you know, your your last term of the last year and you're focusing on all of your exams, your thesis, everything, and then you're just like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, it's like, what comes next? Um, and I'm a person who really loves learning and so it kind of felt like the next step to just continue what I was doing. Um, actually instead of doing something international relations, because my undergrad was international studies with Spanish specifically. So in terms of getting into postgraduate education i ended up pursuing a course in marketing and felt that you know hopefully that was going to lead to more employability and all of those great things because as i said it kind of was a bit of a surprise to me finishing the course because it was such a, a wonderful experience i had at the at the university of buckingham it almost feels like it will never end and then you know when you're making decisions like these i don't know if you feel the same way but certainly in my case i felt as if the world was sort of on my shoulders and making this next step decision everything looking back now it's it's rather amusing to me how things sort of piece together and start making sense as as you're looking backwards but at the time everything is just unbelievably agonizing in terms of thinking What is the best choice that I could possibly be making for myself right now to, you know, benefit myself in the long run? And when you don't really have a specific vision of what you want to be doing, or you have multiple conflicting visions of what you think you'd be, you know, and you would like to do in the future, it makes it quite tough because, you know, as someone who loves humanities, social sciences, you become sort of. A jack of all trades and you're fascinated with history with politics with language
0: thank you to better for sponsoring this episode moving to edinburgh was not an easy decision and it required a lot of mental and emotional preparation and nothing could have prepared me better than going to therapy i've been in therapy for the past seven years now and i cannot recommend it enough for those who think about starting this journey I know sometimes it might be hard to find a good therapist that will match you, so that's why I recommend a BetterHelp as your next therapy source. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy, That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you can get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in-office therapy. But with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash the Brazilian POV. That's betterhelp.com slash the Brazilian POV. And now you do quite a lot of work in terms of, um, in the multicultural scene. Because you are a cultural culture advocate. But what does it mean to be a culture advocate?
1: So it was something that I fell into doing quite unknowingly. When I was at the University of Buckingham, it has a reputation for being one of the most international campuses in the country. And because I was doing Spanish as my minor, and then I was also doing French classes as sort of a an elective thing because I'd studied French previously and I wanted to keep it going as much as possible. I was the president of the language society for a time, and so I was organizing events to have you know music, um, music events and movie screenings to try and help you know outside of the classroom complement everyone's studies so we could have engagement because that's the biggest thing about learning languages is the amount of contact hours. It doesn't matter even if it's in a passive way as long as you have those contact hours it really does benefit your your listening comprehension your vocabulary of course expands even unknowingly and then of course it's just you're getting more acquainted with different cultures from whatever language you're talking about whether it's the francophone world or the hispanic speaking world and so through that i was just having a good time trying to put through put together events that people enjoyed And then I was speaking with some people at the university because I was making a lot of friends through this um, who were from completely different departments because it was quite a small university that I went to, but at the same time, because everyone's schedules were so incredibly different that you would sort of never really brush up against people who weren't from, you know, international relations. So people who were doing sort of politics, economics, you'd couple times get some law people who are taking classes but for instance people who are doing anything you know in the in the business school you wouldn't really get to meet them but through the language society i was coming in contact with a lot more people and it was really fascinating and i made some friendships and we sort of shuffled the board around because every few terms we would have to change the executive board for the language society and it was it was something I'd never really thought about, but, you know, we had only two languages offered at the Modern Foreign Language uh, Department at the University of Buckingham. It was principally French and Spanish because those were the most in demand because that's what a lot of people study, um, you know, in secondary school in in the UK. And so that was sort of considered enough. But, of course, my... I'm interested in culture from all over because I've studied music and I've always been very open-minded because I traveled a lot with my grandparents, which I'm incredibly fortunate enough to have those experiences. And then also where I grew up in California was in Orange County, which was an incredibly internationally diverse community. And so I was always used to Going to school and having, you know, International Culture Days where we'd have the opportunity to be learning about everyone's heritage. And so the community there was, you know, we had loads of people from South Asia, Southeast Asia. We had a lot of people from Armenia in particular, quite a few people from the Middle East, specifically Iran and Iraq. And so I always found it fascinating to have the opportunity to get in. In touch with you know people's backgrounds and learn a little bit about you know sort of their traditions and a bit about the history and when i was at buckingham again being in such a an international hub and then again being a foreigner yourself and having to contend with you know fitting in not fitting in it was something that we all could sort of bond over and I had a friend of mine who was at Buckingham who was Armenian, and I was thinking, you know, how incredibly proud they were of their culture and how much I admired that. And I thought, you know, as much as I love being the head of the Language Society, it's only principally for Spanish and French because that's what it it needs to be tied to for the language department, but it was also incredibly restrictive. And so alongside some of my colleagues, we ended up founding the Multicultural Society. And so our aim was to help further cultural understanding on campus of all cultures. So it wasn't just limited to the languages offered, it was to make sure that everyone felt included and that we'd even cover cultures, even if we couldn't find someone to be a rep, for instance. And so as part of the board, um, I was the president of the Multicultural Society. And so I was sort of the almost, Quasi-Anglosphere sort of rep that, you know, I grew up in California, but my grandmother was from England, my grandfather was from New Zealand, and then definitely less in touch with the side of my culture uh, for a lot of reasons because of not having a family connection, but I'm also half Moroccan, and so that was also something I was looking to sort of explore since I hadn't had an opportunity to do so before. And then the vice president of the society a friend of mine um he's half british half austrian and then the social secretary um was another friend who was from the congo but had a uh, greek rhodian italian jewish background and then the other friend that i mentioned the treasurer who was armenian and so We really wanted to have the opportunity to talk about having diverse backgrounds, because when you're a foreigner, particularly, you know, in the UK, and you speak English, um, such as myself as a native language, or my other friend who was half Austrian, you definitely get pigeonholed in a way um, for for being just American or just British, Um, the rest of your cultural heritage and experiences sort of don't really get noticed a lot of the time and even you don't really have the time to explore them either because you're just sort of existing in a very um, Anglo sphere world and and it's taken for granted a lot of the time. And so that was something that we realized that we had in common, um, that we were all sort of mixed heritage in different ways and Again, it was all something that just sort of came together It wasn't really a a grand plan, initially, but, you know, we started organizing events and we would have poetry readings. Um, We would have different concerts where people would be performing in their native language and then there would be translations on a really large screen behind them, so everyone could sort of follow along and You know the lyrics would be up there for instance if it was in urdu you would have the script up in urdu and then the english alongside it and i just thought it would be a nice opportunity to really just help people visualize um you know what they were getting to to experience you know having the language there to see what the the script is like have the english translation so they can be following along have some nice images to help them follow the themes of the music or the poetry, whatever it was, and just have an opportunity to encounter things that you really never expect. You know, it was one of the most gratifying experiences about that was the fact that people would come up after and say, for instance, they'd never heard music in the language Bahasa from Indonesia, and that they thought it was so fascinating, that it was something they wanted to explore more, Um, you know, for instance, a lot of people who were also from, you know, similar regions who didn't really know about the music in neighboring countries. And there was a lot of friendships that were made. There was a lot of good food that was eaten. That was definitely an added benefit. I feel like that was one way to really (laughs) uh, get people in the doors when you're talking about different cuisine. Obviously, culture certainly supersedes just cuisine, but it is one of those things that is quite hard to miss when you're in the student union and there's just a room that's incredibly fragrant with food from all over the world. It really gets people, you know, let's have a look-see and see what's going on. And so that was sort of the beginning of the journey. I didn't really realize it at the time because, as I said, it was just something that was really fun. We were all really just enjoying doing. It was just a great opportunity to be representatives for our own culture, have the space to be learning about other people's. And it was just a very enriching experience because it was just, you know, really fun volunteer work for the university. And that went on for, you know, a good few years. And then I, you know, followed on to do my postgraduate studies at different institutions. I'd moved around So University of Buckingham's in Buckinghamshire, which is quite close to Oxford. And I was studying my master's um, postgraduate course in, in marketing. And from there, it sort of was a big disconnect because I had moved. It was a completely different university, completely different vibe. And there was no real community building going on there. There wasn't really great student engagement. I don't know what it was about the university. It was a much, much larger university than Buckingham was. But, you know, there wasn't the same, the same sort of vibe. And I was very much focused on the course. As I said, I started out being a master's program and then I switched it to be a postgraduate um, diploma. And so once I'd finished that Again, I was very much in the looking for work sort of mode, doing my best to, again, make the right decisions for my career. But there was absolutely something lacking. I really couldn't put my finger on it at the time. And that feeling had persisted for a good few years. And I was very much, you know, very busy looking for work, being in this, you know, very focused mindset. And until I had a time to take a break last year from, you know, all of the decisions that I've been having to make, uh, a lot of the responsibilities that I've had over the years as a person who's a care for two different people for the last few years. It sounds incredibly, incredibly cliche, (laughs) Um, but I was traveling last year because I had studied Turkish at the University of Exeter and the Institute for Arab and Islamic Studies over... The period of the pandemic here. And so even though I was living in Exeter at the time, I wasn't really able to go on campus. Everything was online at the time. But my professor was absolutely amazing. She was so helpful. She was so engaging. And, you know, once restrictions had been eventually lifted, we were in a position to eventually meet, we met up. And of course, she very kindly invited me to have Turkish coffee in her office. And it was nice to finally meet after, you know, having so many weekly sessions with someone for such a long time and never getting to to meet him in person. It's just one of those uh, funny experiences that we're all gonna sort of relate to and, you know, find strange, but, you know, comfort in as well that we all understand what that was like. And Today, I I definitely consider her a friend as well, not only a professor, but she's an incredibly great person and great friend. And she invited me to travel to visit her in Turkey because she spends a lot of the summers in Turkey with her family. And I was there uh, working on my Turkish last summer. And so I stayed with her for a while there, did a bit of touring and just had some time to reflect, and when I was in Rhodes, the island of Rhodes, which is quite close to Turkey, I ended up taking a ferry from the coast there over to Rhodes since it's somewhere I've always wanted to visit. There's definitely something about the, the Greek disposition. I it was a surprise to me at the time and then i think about it of course not why would this be a surprise there's so many greek philosophers they really do love thinking and and pondering the world so many people were asking me at the time you know oh where are you from what do you do for a living sort of what do you dedicate yourself to and at the time i didn't really have an answer for that because i had been working as an intern at a think tank uh, for European policy previously to going away, but that had finished before my trip. And I really didn't know what I wanted to be dedicating myself to fully because I've studied international relations and I find it fascinating and it's something you know that I'm qualified to do. And of course I have also the, the abilities and marketing that I was also sort of using at the think tank as well. But as much as it's fascinating, I also felt that there was a lack of creativity in a way because you're asked to do, you know, a lot of analysis and reports and things like that, which can be very enjoyable because you end up doing a lot of research and learn interesting things about quite disparate topics. But at the same time, again, there was something I couldn't really put my finger on what was missing. And so when I was in Rhodes, it was a bit of a sensitive topic to be asked so many times oh sort of what do you do and you know after a while of sort of being awkward and and not knowing what to say I would sort of joke and say well is having a a quarter life crisis a a full-time profession because I think you know I might put that down (laughs) as my as my listed occupation at the time so you know people would sort of want to dig deeper and say well that's okay you know that you're not currently employed and you're figuring things out um you know sort of what are your interests what do you what do you enjoy in life you know you're obviously not just your job and your career sort of what what are your passions what what do you love reading about and I just found it incredibly touching how just so many people were willing to spend the time and really wanted to get to know you on surprisingly such a deep level um you know despite just having met quite a short time ago um and people were really looking at you holistically which i think was something that i just sort of forgotten along the wayside because it's been for the longest time you know to to do incredibly well academically um you know to to graduate with you know merit distinction things like this with your degrees and of course the same sort of thing in in high school to be able to graduate with you know great grades to be able to get into good institutions to have these sort of options yeah Um, and I think
0: it's not something that people usually consider so much because we start like so soon and we have to kind of like choose so soon but then when we get to like 25 years old around this time like
1: frontal lobe developing and it's just like a whole Mm. crisis all over again it's just terrible it is because as i said previously that it just felt like every time you were making a decision that it literally felt like atlas you know that you're thinking oh for goodness sake again there's this feels like a, a massive turning point and you're thinking you know what is sort of the best thing because i came from the perspective of you know loving music um loving culture loving learning but of course you know being told that oh you know you can't really study music because what would that really lead to as a career it wouldn't give you a whole lot of options and you know that that made sense to me you know when someone says that that's not going to give you a whole lot of options you think well why would I want to pursue that and sort of narrow down my niche so early in life because you know you're graduating high school and you feel like you you know a lot at the time, which is the biggest joke of the century. (laughs) Um, You know, and it is quite hard to make these decisions. And so you think, well, I'll take the thing that of course incorporates as many things as I like, but also would hopefully give me possibilities down the road. And then of course, once you finish your undergraduate degree, it's sort of, then there's this expectation that, you know, that you have, you know, a sort of more I don't want to say adult approach but almost that that you know you're supposed to be thinking about things more responsibly that it's not just sort of oh I like studying this thing, things so I'm going to do it for the sake of enjoyment it then becomes you need to be looking at your employ your employability factor what will make me look the most um, attractive to employers and so that's sort of for someone like myself was a very difficult game to sort of you know position myself of, you know, I really like all of these sort of arts and culture things, but constantly having this narrative going on that that is not something really to pursue full time, these things are sort of hobbies. um, That you're limiting your options and employability, which was why I had studied marketing because I really didn't wanna go down the route of doing an MBA because I, <laughs> I have not had a wonderful relationship with math for a lot of my life. So I thought that would be quite uh, a stressful endeavor to undertake an MBA. So a post-grad course in, in marketing was sort of the next best thing to open up my thinking from just being a purely you know social sciences person, but to becoming a bit more engaged and aware of you know kind of business world. And so, you know, having the the time to think about things and then again, at the time it was a bit frustrating to be constantly pressed about what felt like being constantly pressed. People, of course, were just being, you know, very friendly and and understanding Noam was antagonistic. But when when you're feeling sensitive about something and it constantly gets brought up, you're thinking, Oh, for heaven's sake, <laughs> you know, it's you know, every time you speak to someone they want to know your name, your profession, and all these sorts of things. But all of the very genuine and you know open questioning eventually sort of led to me thinking over time because people would say you know well that's fascinating that you have so many interests and you know they wouldn't look at it as a liability where sometimes you think that it would be that you know if you put down on your cv that you've studied various things and you have all of these different interests you think that to an employer you're going to look like a jack of all trades and master of none um but you know when you're sort of in a very low low risk environment where you're talking to people and just saying well yeah you know originally i was very into music um and then things sort of led from there and i've been experimenting and seeing you know how i can just obviously become a more well-rounded person um you know having inquisitive people certainly helps you to think about what are the things that i really care about what are sort of my priorities um and you know when you're out and about enjoying good food and and feeling the warmth of the sun it it helps you feel more optimistic and so it was really funny that i had two people that i was speaking to and i don't really know where it came from but they said something about the way i articulated myself and whatnot they said you know have you ever thought of writing and i was quite perplexed by this and i said well what do you mean by writing and they said well we see you as someone who would be you know well able to put words down on paper like you could be writing about travel or things that you find interesting we sort of see you in a writing capacity which is never something i thought about writing was something i'd always had to do um you know i'm I'm sure you're very well aware of this. That in university, you, you write a lot of papers, a lot of research, and quite often you don't really have a choice um, what you would like to be writing on, or sort of when you're picking topics. Sometimes it becomes the lesser evil that you pick on the on the list of choices of of things to write on for essays. And so I had that sort of bouncing around in the back of my head, and and then I sort of thought about how. I was quite taken with a lot of different things. And then I thought about how, of course, history relates to stories. And I find interest in history and culture and people. And then I thought, well, potentially, you know, writing biographies or something like that. And then this idea sort of started fermenting from the time that I had returned back from my trip sort of last fall. And it's been slowly taking shape since then to sort of incorporate all of these interests and I decided that I would be looking to um found some digital publications to create a space for you know sort of the the content that I feel is quite necessary, but also to create community and also give a space for other people to be able to do the same thing about their stories and so that's currently where I'm at at the moment in my sort of uh, founder journey that I have these uh, two different projects going on.
0: No. Yeah. But I love that. I love people who they don't see the content out there. So they create themselves because it gives not only the person more opportunity to put the work out there, but creates this place for people to also contribute. But then this is how
1: you found your magazine precisely because it just feels really necessary and especially unfortunately in this uh, day and age that we're living in that we need a lot more recognition of arts and culture um you know that we need more mutual cultural understanding and you know as i said before that now i quite you know confidently identify someone who is a cultural diplomacy advocate it has been something that I've been doing for a while in different capacities um without really realizing it because as a singer as a performer you know I've been trying to understand and tap into different traditions for a while um you know when I was performing in California because I studied a lot of um different repertoire from different places for instance I was singing um particularly at a certain time a lot of music from the region of catalonia in spain and so i was singing in catalan talking about catalan composers talking about the history and everything and for the majority of people that was the first time that they were hearing about that and i don't think i quite realized at the time the sort of responsibility that almost comes with that you're presenting another culture to other people for the first time and that you're doing your very best to make you know the best impression possible and so that was going on with my musical life and then sort of escalated into a different way where it wasn't just myself performing it was also myself curating these events at the multicultural society at the university of buckingham and then realizing that there needed to be more platforms like this because when you're at university when you're at a campus it is very easy because everything is quite centralized and these events sort of exist and then i found sort of once you're out into the world you have to quite dig deeply in order to find a lot of of arts and culture events going on because they are absolutely happening but a lot of the time they don't receive the publicity that they deserve um and especially with a lot of individuals who are cultural diplomats themselves who are doing incredible work and again it's sort of falling by the wayside because it's not really deemed you know something that's top priority because it just starts in culture unfortunately and so the two publications that i'm in the process of launching one is talisman magazine which is about cultural diplomacy at sort of a higher level so we're talking about institutions organizations festivals programs and sort of more senior career um, cultural diplomats who've been in the industry for a while to be highlighting the works that are going on and then the other publication that i'm also founding is um, mixed media multicultural magazine so this is more of a grassroots approach so i'm getting in touch with you know, early career uh, composers, performers, writers. So, everyone who's either mixed heritage or who comes from a multicultural background, who is in arts and culture, to be showcasing the early works that are going on, the early movements that are going on. Because, as I said, there are a lot of projects going on by some incredibly talented people. But unless you're well aware of it, it sort of falls by the wayside. And with a particular stress on, you know, individuals of mixed heritage and multicultural background, because, you know, as someone who has that, it is it is something I've sort of realized that, you know, there were no examples of that growing up for me, that I didn't really see anyone, you know, per, who were performers that I knew of, or anyone else in sort of in arts and culture, because we do have you know, in the US, a lot of history months where we have, you know, Arab American history month, Black history month, all of these sorts of events. And of course, that's fantastic. But as someone who's mixed heritage, who's multicultural, a lot of the time, it is quite difficult to feel an affinity to sort of one or the other, or you might be you know from that region but you know so little about part of your culture you think well i can't even call myself that because i don't have an intimate relation with it you know either i don't speak the language i haven't been to the country that you know part of my heritage is from and so with this sort of form of almost imposter syndrome you don't feel able to engage which is incredibly unfortunate because it's a huge learning experience to be able to have this sharing and growth. And so having something that's specifically for mixed heritage and multicultural, you know, creatives and individuals to take part in, I feel that it's really important to have that conversation opened up to be able to be talking about these unique contributions. With the founding of this magazine, I'm really seeking to not only highlight, you know, the, the wonderful creative pieces that are taking place, but also to be able to build this community to help, you know, people feel connected to other creatives who are sort of going through similar journeys to hopefully inspire some collaboration. And, you know, take this forward. Nowadays, you know, mixed heritage and multicultural people, it's not something that's you know, uncommon. Um, But again, it's not something we really talk about. And I think it's something that we should, you know, actively be working towards to be proud of, because I feel like a lot of people have such complex emotions and feelings. It's not really something they're proud of. It's something that they feel stressed about, or they feel embarrassed about, or they don't know how to feel about. But um, I'm hoping with launching a project like this, that it would be able to you know open up some dialogue and and leave some space for you know the creative world to sort of start disseminating their works and and hopefully you know improving overall well-being by having this sort of work and conversation and community about.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing work honestly. I just really love that. Um and yeah, the world is just like so globalized that it's just very hard these days to not have mixed heritage and i do think that's something people should be proud of because it's what's gonna be from now on like mostly it's just kind of stupid to be against it it doesn't make sense and it's definitely something that people should be proud of but yes i love the idea thank you so
1: much very kind
0: So finally, every week we give a recommendation of a book, a movie, or TV show. What recommendation do you have for our listeners this week
1: and why? Okay. So the book I would like to recommend is one that I have read recently, and it's quite a new publication. It's called We Are What We Listen To. And it's written by someone I admire very greatly, um, Dr. Patricia Caicedo. Her life's work has, to, has been promoting particularly Latin American repertoire as well as Iberian repertoire. So she's been a performer, a researcher, a cultural diplomacy advocate her whole career. But the interesting thing about Patricia is not only is she unbelievably talented in the world of music that she has, you know, lots of certifications in musicology and has been a researcher in this field for a long time that she actually started out as a medical doctor when her training in colombia she worked as a doctor for a time and then sort of pivoted her career to focus on on more music and focusing on latin america and particularly colombia which is where she comes from and so the book we are what we listen to is her really seizing the moment that we're currently in in terms of research in neuroscience that we're just realizing now, particularly after the pandemic, how arts, culture and wellness are related. And so with her background as a medical doctor, she takes this perspective of having, you know, this many decade long career of combining the two because of course as you know a vocal coach she's been dealing you know inadvertently with the human body because of course the voice is part of the body and everything and she's had this very you know holistic approach to singing i i don't want to spoil too much (laughs) because it is a fascinating read um but i do highly recommend we are what we listen to because there's just so much incredible research going on about you know, just getting down to a molecular level of what music does for the human bodies.
0: Yeah, sounds amazing. Um, Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I love the conversation. Thank you so much for making time and
1: sharing your experience, which is just very uh, varied itself. No problem at all. Thank you so much again for inviting me. It was genuinely a pleasure to be able to talk through all of these different interesting avenues that are sort of going on and ongoing projects that I look forward to hopefully sharing more with you about in the future. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much
0: for tuning in. I really hope that you enjoyed it and I hope to see you back here next week. Bye everyone.